Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast about latest news, research and study opportunities at Birkbeck, University of London. We're going to start with the Olympics, the story that's dominated the headlines and created a real buzz throughout London this summer. I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Rob Williams, a Birkbeck alum and Olympic silver medalist. Rob, thank you for joining us. Uh, no worries. Rob rode for Team GB and came second in the lightweight men's four in a thrilling showdown at Eton Dorney. So Rob, first of all, how does it feel to be an Olympic silver medalist? I think it feels odd. It's obviously something we've spent a lot of time preparing to do and you know, you do the Olympics, you race the Olympics and it's people I've raced a lot of times and you get a silver and you get very insular initially because it's, yeah, I've got a silver at the Olympics. You don't realise what it means until you leave the Olympic environment and start getting on with normal life and I think it gets the feeling gets better every day. So an incredible achievement and but tinged with a slight disappointment. I think we, we, we wanted to win. Um, we were a quarter of a second off winning. Um, you know it's a it's a shame that we've we've barely ever lost to the, the team that beat us when we beat them normally and we uh, we didn't win but you know it's at home Olympics with thirty thousand people cheering us on. You've got to be happy with the silver. Congratulations, incredible. And the race was very close for all the medal positions. How did the race unfold and what were you aware of during the actual race? So I think it was, it was very tough conditions, the racing that we had, and the, the wind conditions made it a bit variable down the course. So off the blocks, we, we didn't have a great start for one reason and another, but we, we were slightly down, but that, that's fine. And we kind of trucked on through everyone and we're so used to close racing we didn't realise how close it was until we saw the video ca- video footage afterwards, but it's uh, it's good fun to be part of a good race. Definitely. Oh, yeah, we all certainly enjoyed it at Birkbeck, gathered around the big screen. Uh, your rowing career has been incredibly successful. You were a reserve at the Beijing Olympics and then won gold at the World Cup competitions 2010 and World Cup again in Munich th- earlier this year. What happens next? Have you got any plans to compete at Rio in 2016, next Olympics? Well, I, I'm not sure yet, to be honest. I mean, uh, as you said, I went to Beijing as a spare, and that was a phenomenal experience. The spare is equivalent capacity to a sub in football, apart from you wouldn't normally expect to race, obviously. Um, yeah, and then in 2010, we won the world championships. So, you know, became a world champion, and that was a, that was a fantastic moment for me. And now, obviously, we've got a silver at home Olympics. So I've got to look at what else I want to achieve in the sport. I think I'll take some time out. Uh, I'll probably take a season a uh, year out and then decide whether to, to carry on for three years or not. So well-deserved rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think a new challenge, maybe. And then aside from the rowing, what was it like to be part of the world's greatest sporting event? Staying in the Olympic Village, taking part in the closing ceremony? I mean, it is honestly incredible. Words can't really, you know, I can say great and I can say these words, but it's really hard to describe what it's like to be in that environment and to... You know, to, to go to a reception and, and I was chatting to Chris Hoy and I turned around and spoke to Arnold Schwarzenegger and it's just Amazing. ridiculously random things happen to us for that period of time. Uh, it's, it's something I'll never experience again. Even Rio will be, you know, if I go to Rio, it'll be completely different to how London was. So, so in that sense, it was fantastic. And you get an athlete pass that we could go to a lot of the sporting events, which was, which was really good fun. It's good fun being within Team GB and wishing each other you know, you wish each other good luck on the way to the race, and it really did feel like one team. So as well as sporting success, you've also just recently completed your PhD in electron microscopy in the Department of Crystallography 
at uh, Birkbeck and UCL's Institute of Structural Molecular Biology. And for the non-scientists among us, could you briefly describe electron microscopy? So electron microscopy is is how we it's one of the ways we look at very very small objects and it's it's not too dissimilar to to light you know everyone's used a microscope it's not too dissimilar to light microscopy in the in the physics of it and so i understand your thesis focused on systems that secrete macromolecules it it did indeed so we uh so what i studied was it's called type 4 secretion systems um and they're a, they're a mechanism which bacteria are able to use to secrete proteins and DNA into the, the target cells or whatever they're trying to infect. They use these systems to, that's how they infect them. You know, Legionnaire's disease is a classic example of something that uses a type 4 secretion system to, to infect. And it, you know, infect is a broad spectrum word, but it's pretty much bacteria. What they want to do is get into something, multiply, not die. So it's one of the things that allows them to do that. And then such research is used to help understand these pathogens. And what's the sort of application of that research? So th this, research, this research is medical research. And, and broadly speaking, the way you make drugs nowadays is you, you need to know the atomic structures of the things in bacteria which allow them to cause the disease, and then you can do rational design. This was a few steps back from that, but it's, you know, it's funded by the Wellcome Trust and the Medical Research Council. And they, it's about furthering our knowledge of how bacteria cause disease. And if you can understand something, you can work out how to stop it. How did you manage to combine sports and academia at such high levels? Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a growing thing, the combination of the two. I think my supervisor, Gabriel Waxman, was, was instrumental in, a, in enabling me to really balance the two, the PhD off against the rowing. And Birkbeck allowed me to go part-time, so half-time in the summer. So that allowed me to do the rowing and, and far less academic academia, and then I'd go full time in the winter when I had a bit more time for the academia. I you know I jokingly described it as juggling when you you could you could only concentrate on one ball at a time, so you had to throw the other one high enough that bought you enough time to concentrate on the one in your hand. Um, but it was, yeah, I think I just I just got through the process, and it was about setting yourself goals and being very outcome focused. Our very own Olympian Rob Williams speaking to me earlier. As well as the thrilling sporting events, the Games have also been exciting from an academic perspective. Researchers and members of the International Olympic Committee shared their latest ideas about the ideals and challenges associated with hosting the Games at a symposium held at Birkbeck. I spoke to Sean Hamill, co-organiser of the event and a director of Birkbeck's Sport Business Centre, to find out more about the 5th International Sport Business Symposium. The event took place on uh, the 7th of August. And, so uh, right in the middle of the Games? Right in the middle of the Games. Very excellent papers and also a number of very, very high profile speakers from the Olympic movement, which I'll we'll talk about a little bit in a moment. And obviously from our point of view, um, you know, fulfills one of the core missions of the Sport Business Centre and indeed Birkbeck to, you know, to be the centre, to be a centre of informed debate on the key issues affecting Londoners. And Again, I think Mark's is sort of uh, a development of our activity, our research activity within the centre. We, we obviously started out with a very strong base in, in the football industry, but we're now researching governance, regulation and business activity across all the major sports. So we're delighted to do that. I mean, the sports business environment is, you know, it's, it's very, very particular. You know, it's, it, it's, 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 it's business. 
but ultimately it's about the exporting event and you have to, you know you need people who are sensitive to that and particularly the olympics which obviously as we've seen one of the reasons it's been such a triumph is because you know it, it, it the, the commercial aspect of it has actually been you know a, a, a secondary factor really in, in, uh, in terms of the actual sporting competitions and and, and the way people have uh, performed these extraordinary feats um, and captured the imagination of everybody and that's grabbed the headlines it hasn't been the well that's right I mean I mean uh, you know uh, as, as, as Ger uh, Gerhard Heiberg the IOC member who spoke at the conference um, discussed I mean you know the, the IOC has to generate revenue in order to you know ensure that the games are run effectively and, and, and the local organising committee has to generate revenue I mean there's a lot of discussion legitimately about the legacy etc and the amount of money that was spent putting the games on but it obviously would be a lot more if um, the IOC and the local organising committee weren't able to generate significant revenue and I personally don't have any problem with that I mean it's the principle of generating revenue is a sound one it's how it's done it needs to be simpatico with the ideas of the Olympic movement. I mean, I mean, that that's that's the issue, that's the issue, and um, you know, I think Gerard Heiberg, uh, Gerard Heiberg, um, you know, explained that, um, for, you know, very very effectively. And I mean, the other thing about the Olympic games is that for a lot of international feder sport federations, the solidarity payments that that are that come from the the commercial sponsorship of the game through the Olympic movement is is, is very very important in, in helping them promote uh, participation. You know, I mean, the the, the Olympic uh, extravaganza itself is only the tip of a sort of a, a, a sort of wider movement driving participation in sport, which all has to be financed. I mean, I um as unhappy with a uh, you know aggressive uh, brand protection etc as anybody else there's certainly a balance to be struck there there were some um, high profile cases before the games that were the media commentary suggested that the policing of uh, the, 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 the of, of uh, the Olympics brands may have been a little bit overzealous but I mean I think one of the good things about the symposium was that um, you know, Gerd Heiberg was was uh, I think I don't think it's too strong to say interrogated pretty effectively by the members of the audience on that issue, and he dealt with the, the questions in a fairly candid way. We were there to have an informed, critical discussion, and and I think that's what we got, and we're very pleased about that. And there was a in-depth, informed debate about a whole range of issues at the symposium. So the role of the Youth Olympics, the growth of revenue from TV rights. And the importance of well, sponsors. I mean, I mean that's right. I mean, we're very, very fortunate with the caliber of the people that we had. I mean, um, Richard Pound, uh, Dick Pound, at the end of the day, you know, IOC member, IOC member, very, very prominent uh, member of the IOC over the last twenty-five years in terms of influence and policy, gave a very detailed exposition of the history of the development of the the IOC's approach to generating or, or maximizing the value of the, of the of the revenues from broadcasting rights and one of the several points he made was was historically actually if you go back to the los angeles games the ioc w was being grossly underpaid for the rights and and and, and, and the most of the revenue was going to the local organizing committee and um you know i think what he what he did uh, you know and, and 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 in order for the ioc to play its solidarity role and funding sports participation through funding its uh, international federations and 
etc. You know, they needed to get their act together. In other words, the picture is much more nuanced and complex than you know one might be led to believe by just reading the sort of the, the headline figures in the media. We also had uh, uh, Sam I IOC member from South Africa, you know, an exile here uh, uh, during the apartheid era. A man very, very familiar with Birkbeck, a regular visitor to, to classes here at Birkbeck in the eighties. You know, a, a, a man who had taught in East London, and. I'll, you know, and he's, he spoke about the legacy of the games, particularly poignant because of his experiences teaching Hackney. Well, that's right, and a guy who you know remains, uh, you know, demonstrated deep enthusiasm for the park sport to to inspire young people, and you know, and 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 again discussed fairly candidly um, some of the the issues surrounding the legacy for the FIFA World Cup two thousand and ten in South Africa, and you know, you know, observed that yes. It's 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 there are very difficult challenges there putting on these events, and you can't always measure the successes um, purely in terms of pound shilling and pence. There's a wider issue about confidence building, etc., etc. Um, but again, central to his message was the the role of sport, um, in promoting, you know, good health among young people, and I think there was obviously a subtext to it, which is. You know, in order to succeed in the Olympics, I mean, you have to, you have to invest in yourself, as an athlete and as a person, in order to achieve something that is tangible and real. I mean, it's not ephemeral. It's it, you know, it, it's demanding, and there's a parallel there with I hope the ideas of Burbeck and the academic context, where, you know, we we are we are correctly recognised as a high quality institution who do not compromise on academic standards and that is why our degree programs have value. And it was, you know, I, th I thought it was very, very useful to hear that echoed by, 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 Sa by Sam Ransami. East London has benefited greatly from the infrastructure, money and attention associated with London 2012. Birkbeck is also playing its part in the regeneration of the area with its new campus opening next autumn in Stratford. Sean referred to this during our conversation. With the success in Langley, it's pretty clear that it's absolutely the right thing to do, and I mean, I think it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a big, big moment in the history of the college, and I think the timing is 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 really excellent. You know, I mean, anybody who's been to the Olympic Park will know that actually they've done a pretty good job. And there's a real buzz about Stratford. There's a now. real, there's a real. I mean, Stratford is not the Stratford of fifteen years ago. You know, Stratford is buzzing. It's 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 a sort of it's it's really a new it's a it's almost like a new city emerging in the east, and it, and and there's a huge population out there that require the kind of education for mature students that Bert Beckham's been offering for nearly two hundred years, and it's I think it's tremendous to be there, and personally I mean I like the idea of um, teaching classes on on the side adjacent to the Olympic Park, um and it, you know it's and it's actually not that far I mean one of the things you discover of course during the Olympics is it's not that hard to get there. Sean Hamill talking about the Olympics, sport and business. Now we change tack and highlight some new intensive courses in law running at Birkbeck this academic year. Birkbeck prides itself on providing flexible education to meet the needs of students, managing their studies alongside their careers, family or other commitments. The latest innovation in teaching at the college is the range of intensive postgraduate law programmes. I'm joined by Dr Stuart Motha, director of these intensive programmes, to find out more. At Birkbeck we're always looking for 
new ways in which people can fit education in with their working and family lives. And increasingly, in leading uh, universities and law schools uh, around the world, po postgraduate legal education is being offered on an intensive basis. And, and this is very intensive. Indeed. Uh, intensive uh, uh, programs are usually run on the basis that uh, a module is taken over the span of one week. Now, that may seem like a very uh, fast and quick way to uh, cover the contents of a module, uh, but in fact, our programs are designed so that you receive 25% more face-to-face -face teaching in the intensive mod uh, mode of uh, delivery than you would receive in the conventional offering. So in fact, the face-to-face -face, uh, teaching that takes place is actually more in these intensive models. But the key aspect of the intensive, of course, is that the um, actual time spent by the student at the university uh, is concentrated into a few weeks in the year. And could you expand on that? So it's concentrated in a few weeks. How many weeks and when? Uh, there will be two weeks of teaching in April 2013 and then two weeks again at the end of June 2013. So overall the face-to-face -face teaching in the intensive programs is over four weeks. And what subjects are on offer? Well, we have three uh, LLM programs on offer, each with five subjects uh, in, 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 in each program, plus a dissertation. Uh, so we have a, a human rights uh, program, a program in international economic law, justice and development, uh, and a new program which won't be familiar to many people called Law, Democracy and Human Welfare Global Perspectives. So they're the three master's programs and students, uh, prospective students, would be familiar with usually applying for a master's in law uh, within a particular program and they would understand that um, um, within a program you have a requisite number of modules that you have to undertake. And it's no different in an intensive taught program. Uh, similarly, there is a program structure with specific modules that they need to take. And those subjects very much reflect the progressive history of the law school at Birkbeck and an international outlook as well. Indeed, I mean, we could certainly say that um, the, the, the two uh, key features of uh, our uh, program and teaching generally at Birkbeck Law School uh, is that we are interdisciplinary um, in, in, in our approach and we uh, undertake a contextual and global perspective. And who are you targeting with these programmes? Who would you like to see in the classroom? Uh, people who've had some experience uh, uh, in the workplace uh, and uh, want to uh, add to their qualifications, want to uh, combine their uh, experience with a period of reflection. And so in that sense, we would be expecting that it would be mid-career uh, people who would be particularly interested in interested in the intensive uh, programs. But however, uh, having said that, uh, of course they're open to anyone uh, to apply for. And have you found employers being supportive of this idea? Indeed, it's a very appealing mode of study uh, from the point of view of employers because uh, employees don't have to take a great deal of time off work to undertake this study. So. 
for instance, if you were doing a master's in a conventional model, you would have to uh, take a few nights uh, off each week if you were if you do it, if you were doing it on a part-time basis, or indeed uh, take a whole year off if you're doing it on a full-time basis. Uh, but in in the intensive programs, you can study full-time, and the contact time uh, you're uh, required to have with your with with your teachers uh, is over uh, four weeks over uh, these two cycles in in April and June. And what will happen between the two periods of intensive study, so between April and June? Well, our anticipation is that the students uh, will uh, be uh, working on their uh, assessment and essays arising out of the modules they've done uh, in the first cycle, and of course preparing their readings and materials uh, for the second cycle of teaching. Uh, so, But as I said, it's our sense is that um, the... Um, preparation that uh, a student has to do has to unfold over a very significant period of time. It is not that uh, one comes to class uh, and uh, takes a module uh, you know, for four hours a day and then gains all the content uh, uh, of knowledge that uh, you want to get from a program or ask the kinds of questions that you want to ask. That has to happen over a significant period of time. So the period in between will be quite in between April and June will be quite similar to the period from January to April, which is that students will be preparing uh, for for their contact time. So there's quite a bit of homework involved as well. It's not just that uh, that four week period. Um, absolutely, but but no different to uh, another pro another kind of conventional off offering of an, a master's program. That is to say that at master's level, we would be expecting students to. Um, read a significant amount of material. We of course know that, that people are working and there has to be a limit to how much people can read. And which courses will you be teaching? Well I'll be particularly involved with the new program in uh, law democracy and human welfare. I'm quite excited about this program because it is probably the only uh, master's program in law in the country which is responding directly to the um, impact uh, on ordinary people of the massive privatization of what used to be state-delivered functions. Um, so our sense is that human suffering is not any less now than it used to be before, but the different modes and means of dealing with human suffering have changed. And what this program in Law, Democracy and Human Welfare tries to do is to get at how uh, human suffering and need is being met and addressed by different kinds of agencies, sometimes in the public sector, uh, but now increasingly in the private sector. And could you give some examples from the UK of these state-delivered functions being transferred elsewhere? Well, I think uh, anyone who was watching the Olympics and uh, thought about the whole question of security would have seen that G4S fact that a private organization had been brought in uh, to offer uh, and provide security became a significant question of public concern. Um, there was questions about accountability and responsibility. There was questions about the contractual obli obligations of G4S uh, in, 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 in terms of uh, the delivery of what they had promised. Uh, and there was a, a huge public outcry so that's one very 
recent example of how what were previously regarded as primarily public functions, namely policing, uh, has been privatized. Um, organizations like G4S and other security organizations are of course involved in uh, security across a, a variety of sites. Uh, so for instance, uh, the uh, removal of people who have applied for asylum uh, in the UK uh, back to the, uh, their uh, countries of origin, for instance, is often uh, um, administered by private organizations. And that gives rise to a, a large number of questions of accountability uh, and responsibility. Healthcare is another site which is uh, increasingly a site of debate about, uh, about privatization. Um, so uh, it really is the, cu the cutting edge of um, social, political, and economic issues that we're trying to think about in these intensive programs. Dr. Stuart Motha talking to me earlier. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. For more information about Birkbeck's news, events, and courses, visit www.bbk.ac.uk. Finally, as term begins, good luck to all our new and returning students. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.